This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Mark Scudder, the CEO of Scudder Law Firm out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Scudder, uh, Mark, how are you? Hey, doing great, Craig. Good to see you again. Uh, likewise. So Scudder is a storied firm involved in a lot of the transactions that take place around the freight and logistics industry. You guys take a lot of companies public. You do a lot of uh, private equity and debt transactions. Um, what got you started in specializing in transportation logistics specifically? You know, Craig, it's kind of a, uh, uh, in a way, a tale of two families. If you go back to your grandfather and my father uh, in the 1960s, uh, they, they got together and, and uh, started uh, you know, building trucking companies. And my, my dad handled the legal side. And really for a lot of trucking companies uh, throughout the 60s and 70s, and then uh, when deregulation came in the 80s, uh, he was handling the M&A side and the, and the capital raising side for uh, you know, folks like uh, you know, the Fuller family, the, uh, the Moises, uh, the Judines, uh, you know, a lot of the, the families that, that were big around trucking. And as they grew and needed capital, uh, we started doing public offerings and, and then uh, helping them acquire other companies and, and other ways help them grow. And uh, that then led to you know, working with private equity firms and you know, other, other founders to, to get their companies going. And it's been a great industry for us, a lot of great relationships and uh, something we've been uh, really happy to be proud of, uh, or proud to be part of uh, for those companies' growth. Now, if you go back to the 1960s and look at things today, things have changed quite a bit. We had deregulation that took place uh, in middle of that, as well as sort of the evolution of the third-party logistics company. I imagine that your customer list or the folks that work with you guys has evolved over time. It has, um, and it's both evolved, evolved internally, where a lot of the trucking companies have developed their own logistics arms, and externally. and. Uh, as uh, you know, we've uh, been fortunate to do business with people like uh, an XPO or a Panther Expedited or uh, some of the other logistics companies that were uh, part of a, uh, a company called Fenway's portfolio. And, uh, and then on the warehousing side and, and dedicated side with the Land Air, with Saddle Creek, uh, with a number of different companies that, uh, that are involved across the spectrum. And, um, and then with TFI International, uh, the, the Canadian company, uh, we uh, just uh, were part of closing uh, a transaction for them yesterday where they acquired the RRD uh, logistics business in the United States. Yeah, TFI has had a, a really great run over the last couple of years, actually the last couple of decades, but certainly the last couple of years, as they've been very acquisitive and seem to have done, have had 
done a really good job of ingesting those businesses and integrating them. Um, I, I imagine there's a playbook for that. Um, you've seen it with Knight Swift and what they've done with Swift and sort of the integration of the, the two companies there. We, in terms of the process of integrating those businesses, where do you think companies have the best chance of success and where do they tend to get it wrong? Yeah, I think the, um, the companies that, that have really done it right, they first of all understand a lot about the company that they're, uh, they're thinking about acquiring. What's the quality of the management team? What's the quality of the strategy? Is it sustainable? And then they'll play off of, uh, you know, if it's really not a company that, that is capable of uh, performing at, uh, you know, at a level that returns the cost of capital, then you need to do something different, which generally means integrating it directly into the acquiring company, lowering cost, improving the, uh, the marketing methods, uh, you know, doing the other things that the really successful companies do. If you have a good team of people that are capable of executing, and maybe they, little, they need a little help with capital structure, or they're really great operators, but their marketing uh, side could use some muscle, and, uh, or maybe they're really great at sales, but they need some help on cost. And you think about a company like, like a Knight, uh, the, with what they did with um, you know, first Barnon and then Abilene, and then uh, with Swift, they were able to take teams that were executing really well uh, in a lot of ways, and then bring some additional uh, you know, processes and, um, and philosophies you know, to the table and really make something that was better afterwards. Um, and that's, you know, that's worked uh, well for, for companies like that. And TFI has done a terrific job as well. They're very metric driven. Uh, they're very financially savvy, very cash flow driven. And they bring that kind of um, analytical ability and discipline to the companies that they acquire. Mark, you, you've done quite a bit of the IPOs, probably most of the major IPOs in the truckload space. I imagine that things have changed since Sarbanes-Oxley over the last 20 years. You think about companies wanting to go public. Uh, are you getting a lot of uh, uh, firms that inquire about going public, or is it just an option that doesn't seem uh, ideal for them at this stage? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's great for companies that have the right, um, uh, yeah, the right characteristics for being a good public company. You have to be uh, uh, financially disciplined. You have to have very good processes and systems. Uh, you have to have a commitment to this sort of governance profile that public investors want now. Um, you have to have something, you know, if you think about why do investors want to put their capital with a public company, it's because you either have the ability to outgrow the market so you can return uh, a better result that way, or you have uh, a very uh, strong discounted cash flow uh, profile so that investors can predict in the future that uh, there will be a growth of earnings and cash flow over time that they want to be part of. And if, if, you, if you really don't have a superior growth model or a superior cash flow model, it's pretty tough to, uh, to justify going public unless you're really using it as uh, maybe it's a uh, liquidity event for a founder or for you know, another investor, and then maybe a stage toward getting acquired. Um, eventually yeah it's it's coming being in technology you sort of you see continuous growth certainly our charter by expectation by our investors is uh, continue to grow whereas you own assets growth comes at a pretty significant cost in terms of having to uh, acquire debt and assets that you know 
had high depreciation. I imagine for truckload carriers it's tough, but a lot of action has happened in the third-party logistics space, mostly from private equity. How are you seeing that market evolve? You know, that market has been hot for a long time now, uh, and for the reason that you talk about, that the cash flow characteristics are strong. Uh, private equity investors can put uh, enough leverage on the business uh, and still have cash to grow. That, um, and then there's, there has been enough interest that they always have an exit through you know, either uh, selling to the next private equity firm, getting acquired by uh, strategic or, uh, or potentially going public. So um, you know, it's a field with a number of different options and with um, the character, you, know, you don't have to have leverage to grow the business and to pay down the, the acquisition or investment debt. So for those reasons, it's pretty attractive. And you know your 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 observation about assets is um, you know is pretty well taken. I think about you know a company Genesee in Wyoming. It's in the railroad space, uh, but I was on the board for 16 years. Company grew from about uh, 250 million in revenue to two billion in revenue during that time, and the market cap um, expanded by about 10 times, uh, largely through acquisition. It's a kind of a GDP grower, maybe a little bit in excess of GDP. Um, if you can pick up a few customers here and there, but through acquisition, then pay down of debt, then acquisition, then pay down of debt, you could make an asset-based company grow. Uh, and you know, Knight Swift was very much the same way. Um, uh, but unless you can operate, uh, you know, in a in a fifteen or twenty percent profit margin, uh, it's pretty tough to grow an asset-based business uh, at a double-digit rate and create the returns your investor want, unless you can also acquire. Yeah, it's difficult. I think railroads have an advantage of of not having to, uh, particularly ones that are hauling commodities, uh, where they, they have sort of a an oligopoly or a monopoly of that market. Uh, they, they have a lot of sort of instinct advantage that doesn't exist in truckload, where it's sort of a commoditized environment where uh, price has a lot to do with the profitability of the company. Um, you know, in terms of evolutions of the market, over the last five years, we've seen a lot of venture capital enter the market uh, and aggressively uh, start to make investments in not only technology companies, but also uh, digitally enabled freight brokers. We've seen it with Convoy, Uber Freight, Transfix, et cetera. Are you seeing any deal flow in that? Uh, do, do you guys participate in the early stage companies? Yeah, we have. We. Um... Uh, the, most recently, we've uh, worked with a, uh, actually with a larger company that acquired a digital brokerage uh, firm. It's uh, not been publicly announced, so I, you know, I can't talk about which one it is. But um, it's a, uh, it was something they wanted to do to augment their, uh, their call it legacy brokerage business and, uh, and be able to add on digital and then eventually use the, um, you know, the cost savings to, to drive growth. Now, why would, is it just versus building it in-house, a lot of times, you know, people in the market accuse digital brokers of being a broker with an app, but is there something more fundamental and attractive about the digital uh, brokerage space to, to a large uh, a legacy incumbent? Well, I think you've got different markets. Uh, you know, there, are, there will probably be for quite some time the, the legacy model where there's um, a lot of uh, personalized information about the customer that's known, uh, the, personal you know, the personal relationships with the carriers to be able to know exactly what they want um, and, and match them up effectively. 
There's also uh, a lot of freight and probably you'd call it more, um, uh, maybe not quite as, uh, you know, as hot a freight or not quite as specialized a freight that can be matched up and um, uh, digitally. And if you, uh, this maybe it's a, an example of one, but a company that their digital system can match uh, 47 loads per, uh, you know, in-person in broker. Um, and the in-person broker can match about six per day. And so if you're talking about matching 47 loads versus six in a day, uh, that's a pretty big difference in terms of revenue that you can drive over a largely fixed cost model. So I think they, uh, from that perspective, you're gonna see uh, digital brokerage continue to grow. You're gonna see, I think that you'll see the automation of a number of functions, even in the legacy models. Uh, to be able to leverage the the human talent that's inside those companies, and you're going to see that you know the the people get pushed more into uh, sales and relationship roles, uh, probably than just the um, you know the actual matching of the loads. If you think about it, you know you, you referred to deregulation and some of the changes earlier. Uh, for about the first um, you know, thirty years after deregulation, uh, uh, that the truckload business uh, really took market share away from less than truckload and other modes because they could offer cost savings and efficiency that the other modes couldn't. That the, the cost savings really stagnated some over the last decade. Um, and um, not to say that, that, that they got worse, but um, the ability to drive it, drive down cost as a percentage of the, as, of the shipper's um, wallet um, kind of stagnated. And if you, you know, what's the next frontier for the shipper? It's really to take empty miles out of the total, you know, U.S. shipping system. If you're still at, uh, you know, 10 to 20% empty miles, if you can drive that out, that's cost that the shippers don't have to bear, and they're going to look for that. And, you know, digital brokers can be part of that solution. Um, you know, trucking companies can be part of that solution. Uh, technology can be part of that solution. And then using the very scarce resource of drivers, um, is part of that solution where they're spending more of their time driving uh, and less of their time waiting and doing other non-productive things. So, uh, and then you'll find specialists that that get into the last mile or uh, you know other uh, parts of the business that don't take a CDL, uh, and those can probably be uh, enhanced through technology as well to really parse uh, you know what what can be best performed by each asset that a, that's at a company's disposal. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of conversation about quote unquote race to the bottom in brokerage margins where the 18% of yesterday or a couple of years ago is, you know, the sort of the top end of the margins are 15% and now I think they're in around 13%. Um, I imagine that technology is driving that, but it's also helping a lot of the uh, freight brokerages that are out there compete in a lower margin market. It, I imagine that if you are a freight broker, you almost have to invest in these workflow solutions, as you mentioned, to do more volume just to keep up. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's only a personal opinion. It doesn't mean it's right, but I think that you'll see overall brokerage margins probably drop into single digits uh, over the next five or six years. And that'll still be a little barbell weighted. You'll get um, you know, the digital brokerages, I think, on their percentage of freight will get even skinnier than that. Um, because they'll be able to drive cost out. 
and, and apply a huge volume over their, um, over their platform. And I think you'll get, uh, you'll still get uh, the more specialized uh, brokerages um, that, uh, you know, really handle the hot freight or the specialized freight or that have established relationships uh, with companies and they, they can hang on. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to have, you know, double digit margins and, um, you know, people, you'll see some, uh, some amount of differentiation between those two markets. Mark, you talked to a opinion, lot of, it's an opinion, doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> you talked to a lot of executives, uh, in what we would describe as sort of legacy or established very large companies, um, that trade at very different multiples uh, than what you see in the private venture markets. Um, just the, the way that those things are priced. What is the, when you talk to these uh, large company executives and they're talking about sort of the valuation metrics of early stage companies, what is the, what is their usual, you, what is their usual feedback? Are they just confused by it or intrigued by it? How do they think of their own businesses in that, in that vein? Yeah, so I think that um, it, it runs the gamut. There's some people who don't understand it and don't really um, think that it's relevant. And, uh, you know, their their business model is to uh, try to work on margin and, and generate more with the assets they have and continue their growth model. And and uh, so they're not as interested. Uh, there are some that look at it, I think, mainly like what would be the cost for me to build that particular uh, technology or application uh, if I had to hire the people to do it internally and what could I do with it? And they value it more based on what the company could do for them uh, and what's the substitution for, do, for, for acquiring that company or investing in that company and using the product, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, versus doing it themselves. I don't think most of the legacy businesses look at it like, um, the company itself will forever be based on a multiple of revenue. Uh, if it, you know, if it never generates profits. And so they they don't really look at it like, Hey, if I acquire enough of those, then suddenly my you know, legacy company is going to trade based on a multiple of revenue. Yeah. I, you have to exit at some point and exits evaluations in early stage companies become quite different when there's an exit. Uh, and, that, and frankly, for a founder, that's really the only one that matters uh, because you're not seeing that capital. You see it help you build your business, but you know, investors eat first. So it's, uh, it's certainly interesting. I, I face it firsthand because being a part of a legacy family that's publicly listed uh, and having a private company that's valued by venture uh, standards is, is, is a big difference in terms of how those things are uh, approached and thought of. Yeah, and and uh, and they can change quickly. Uh, I mean, you can see that in both markets, really. The public market can change quickly, but uh, the private venture market can change quickly as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that you've probably seen a number of the of the SPAC transactions uh, in in the last year, year and a half, is uh, you know uh, growth has been valued above uh, about above value stocks. Uh, there have been a number of transactions in the technology or technology-linked arena um, that have been valued quite highly. Uh, it takes a long time or, or relatively long time to do an IPO, particularly if you're not a company with a really long established track record. And so I think uh, some investors are, have decided that they're going to take money off the table and, and, and take risk off the table by getting to the market quicker, um, even if they have to give up a little more in terms of dilution. 
than they might have under a traditional IPO uh, methodology. I'm glad you mentioned SPACs. I, I wonder if this is a short-term uh, element in, in markets or something, a more permanent fixture. What is your take of the SPAC market? Is this a great new asset that we're going to see become uh, sort of mainstream, or is it going to fade out as fast as it came came about? Uh, I, I think they've got you know, similar uh, products have gone in cycles. So you go back to whether they were called public shells or blank check companies or or SPACs. It's uh, you know it's similar in a number of respects. I think the the things that have changed uh, one is the size of the uh, investors and the. Uh, you know, for lack of a better word, pedigree of the investors that are putting the SPACs together now um, has really brought a different level of uh, probably uh, in credibility with, with other investors uh, to the SPAC market. Uh, some of the procedures that have put, been put in place to for shareholder votes and the ability to withdraw capital if they don't like the transaction that's being proposed by the SPAC, I think have helped as well. And um, so no, I think it's, uh, while I believe there will be cycles, just like there, there are cycles for IPOs, there are cycles for uh, you know, valuations in, in the different markets. Uh, so uh, if you look at the last 18 months, I think um, SPACs have been uh, 25 or 30% of the capital raised. Do I always think they're gonna be that much? Uh, probably not. Probably go in cycles with the IPO market and uh, with overall valuations and interest in growth companies. Um, where the growth company gets an exit in a way that's not always available to them and the SPAC gets access to you know, a company they might not otherwise uh, be able to acquire. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch how the next couple of years uh, work out. Uh, but the great thing is there's always evolution in the financial markets. Um, so, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on Full Speed Ahead and being a part of this uh, great series. Uh, how can folks reach out if they're interested in talking to you about whether they're early stage and, and uh, wanting some guidance on how to form their company and, and build uh, uh, their business uh, in terms of legal advice or potentially looking at a transaction? How can they reach you guys? Sure. Well, thanks, Greg. Uh, they, can, they can go to scudderlaw.com. Uh, they could put uh, you know, Scudder and Lincoln, Nebraska in, the, in their uh, Google and probably... Uh, probably not get a wrong hit. And, uh, or you call me on my cell phone, uh, 402-499-3221, like you do, so. Well, Mark, that's a dangerous thing to put it out. <laughs> there, there will be a lot of people. We actually have a, a pretty large audience, uh, believe it or not. So uh, who knows who you'll hear from. Um, but uh, I appreciate your time today, Mark. Uh, best of luck as we finish out the year. And um, I think it's gonna be a good one.